This episode features an interview with author and food blogger Julia Scarpaleggia. Julia has a new book available called Cucina Povera. We discuss the book and highlight some of the recipes and philosophies of Italian cooking featured in the book. For links to the recipes featured in the show, as well as more information about Julia, please reference our show notes. And on to the show. You're listening to Sharing the Flavor a show that connects you with flavor and how to create it. In this show, we connect you with recipes, cooking techniques, and show you a little bit of the science of cooking to help make you a successful cook so you can share flavor with your friends. I'm your host, Andy Gebby. In this episode, we're in Tuscany talking with author and food blogger Julia Scarpaleggia. We talk about her new book, Cucina Povera, as well as her studio, cooking classes, and blog. So join us on a fun-filled discussion of Cucina Povera. Hello there, Vanessa and Giovanni. How are you? We have another awesome show ahead of us here today. Good morning, Andy. Good morning, Gio. Hi to our guest, who is going to be introducing Andy. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Halloween, and Happy Easter. We'll just celebrate all the holidays right now, (laughs) right here. And we have another reason to celebrate. We have a special guest here with us. We have Julia Scarpaleggia here with us. Julia, how are you? Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I'm pretty well, let's say, yeah. So people we're might very know. excited to have you here. Sorry, Andy. I just had to say that. Yes. We're very oh. excited. Mm. Julia, I, I looked at your website and your cookbooks, and I'm very, very, very like impressed, and we're very honored to have you on our show. It's like really, really cool. I would Thank agree. You. Big fan, big fan. Love your blog. For those that for those that may not know Julia's blog, please check out Jewelskitchen.com, where Julia has a lot of information. So Julia, tell us a little bit about yourself and all the wonderful things that you have online. So um, I'm a cookbook author and a food writer. So I share most of my recipes either on the blog, juicekitchen.com, or in my newsletter, Letters from Tuscany. I also have um, a podcast, Cooking with an Italian Accent, where I talk about you know everything Italian related to food with my Italian accent. And I teach Tuscan cooking classes here in my country house, which is in between Siena and Florence. And I work with Tommaso, my husband. He's the photographer, videographer, podcast producer, and basically is the one cleaning before and after a cooking class and tasting all the food. I love behind the scenes people. Right? Tommaso is that I, I love that. What a, what a lucky man. He gets to eat your food and then you get him to clean up after you. I... That's, like best, that's the best of both that's worlds. That's a match made in heaven right there. I know. Yeah. And by the way, I was just watching, I was showing this to Megan. I thought this was very cool. Your cooking on the road, making chambota in a van. That was mm-hmm. impressive. <laughs> it was my first time cooking a van. It was it was fun. <laughs> it was inspiring. I decided to remove some of the things from my studio. <laughs> I have too much stuff. <laughs> So we're here today because what we want to do is we want to feature your brand new book, Cucina Povera, which we're going to be talking a lot about that. But we also have some topics we want to cover here, too, as well. So I'm going to bring up our little menu that we have here today because we have some wonderful things to talk about. 
Uh, but first, maybe what we could do a little bit is, do you want to tell us a little bit about your classes that you teach, Julia? I, I loved in your book when you talk about the fact that you, the very first thing you do is you bring people down to the market and you incorporate the market in your classes. So tell us a little bit about that. So uh, on Wednesday, we have the market class. We meet at the local cafe. We start with cappuccino, espresso, with pastries. And then we go to the market and that's where we decide the menu for today. We don't, I don't have a fixed menu for classes. I like to improvise with what is seasonal because at least it's more fun for me. Every week is a different menu. Um, and then after the market, we go to the butcher if we want to include meat in our classes. And then we drive to the studio. This is a short drive. We are in the countryside of Colle Valdelsa. And there we cook. It's a family style class. So a big table. Everyone is around the table and we cook together. We talk and then we eat. Uh, and that is <laughs> the best part of the of the whole class. On Thursday, we have uh, another class. And usually that is not included in the market because the I live in a small town and the market is just on Wednesday morning. So the Thursday morning is just a cooking class uh, with the products that I buy at the market. And again, we try to improvise. I try to have options. I always have the basic ingredients. So uh, I like to have people decide what they want to do if Maybe they tried something during their holidays and they want to learn the recipe. We can work on the recipe. So it's very interactive. And then last this year, we just launched a new uh, kind of classes. It's a three-day experience that will be um, available from November. And that's because it's so hot in the summer that we are trying to move our classes to the autumn and uh, winter season. So it will be a three-day masterclass. We start on Wednesday with the market. We buy all the ingredients for the three days and we will have the chance to cook recipes that take a little bit longer. So it might be beans, it might be bread. We will try to cook the seasonal uh, desserts from Siena or from the countryside. In November, maybe Spancosanti in December, Panforte Ricciarelli from Siena. So that will be uh, highly seasonal with basic, simple ingredients that you can buy at the market or you have in your pantry. And we will take time to cook these recipes. So we will stay together for three days and cook for three days. It sounds like a great immersive experience, really. I know. I want to go <laughs> right now. <laughs> could, we just, could we just do that now? Oh, that, that would be wonderful. Amazing. <laughs> can, I, can I ask a, a quick question? Sure. Um, to Julia. Uh, in some places, people aren't used to going to, uh, don't even realize what markets are. Uh, can I ask, do you see a difference between nations and places the reactions to first the color quality of the food you'll find in the market and then the fact that you do it and you or even going to butchers which also in many places we don't have anymore in the united states can you expand just a tiny bit on, on how people react when they see the differences so first of all it's a tiny italian market in this market you find everything pots and pans shoes flowers house vests and fruit and vegetables when we come to the fruit and vegetables, it's like an explosion of colors. Uh, usually everyone is impressed by the variety and also by the fact that you can travel through Tuscany or through Italy thanks to the labels. Because if you can buy, I don't know, melons from Maremma and then you find peaches from Mugello and then you find uh, tomatoes from the coast. So every since not all the producers there are, not all the vendors are producers, if they buy from local producers, they will tell you where the things are coming from. And so it's great because you can see what is 
here and now. And I don't know, for example, the best artichokes come from the coast. And when it comes to the potatoes, they are from Mugello. So it's also a way of traveling to the different areas of Tuscany in a tiny small market of a tiny small town. So that's, that's interesting. Um, and then it's fun because we talk with the producers or we talk with the vendors. They can tell you, today buy this because it's fresh or try this recipe that I tried and it's good. And, and so it's fun. And the same is at the butcher because um, it's a family run shop. You, you find there the mother, the father, and the son. Now the son is the boss of the of the shop. And he says that his father is the worst employee ever. It's <laughs> <laughs> hilarious. I love it. <laughs> and they are they are lovely because I learned to cook meat thanks to them because they always tell you which is the best cut to do something. And they will explain you the time it takes, the best way to cook that. And they have the best prosciutto. So we slice they slice prosciutto there for us to taste, and then always we bring something back home. Yeah. Do you need a cooking assistant? Because I'm going to give up my job here and move to Italy and work for you. <laughs> I'll I'll clean up. Your husband doesn't have to do it. I'll clean up after you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds amazing. Have you always been interested in cooking? Have you been doing this since you were a child, or is it something that you started doing later in life? I I always love cooking because I always love eating. And so my mom is not the best cook. My grandmother is the best uh, cook of the family. So if I wanted to eat something, I had to find a recipe. I had to find a way to cook that. And that's how I developed my passion for cooking. I don't have a culinary de degree. I graduated in marketing and communication, so something completely different. But then I started my blog in 2009 when I was 28. Yes. And basically everything evolved from there. I realized I wanted to work with food and English. So after a couple of years of my blog, I started giving classes um, because we used to rent a small apartment. So we had tourists here searching for classes. And then everything developed. It, it was the first years of blogging. So it was easier. And I could really, as my mom says, I didn't have a boyfriend at the time. So I had plenty of free time. <laughs> so I could, I could use all my time and passion for the blog and the cooking classes, and it worked. And now I have a husband, and we work together, so it's it's even better. It worked out perfectly. It did yeah, work that's out perfectly. So one of, one of the things I love is I was reading about your studio, right? And I love the story about the creation of your studio. I love the reference, and I hope I get this right. This is your grandmother's stove, right? The wood burner that you prepare your tea on. The, the one in front of me, it used to be my grandmother's, yeah, to heat the studio. And then we have the burners the, the, where I cook and everything. So they are facing, one is facing the other. Yeah. And I think the new one. And I, and I think was it Tommaso was talking about that he loves the fact that it was painted and it was of auto, auto, automobile quality paint, right? The, that's, that's on there. Exactly. They paint. Uh, this Bertazzoni stove where they paint the Ferrari. So it's the same bright red color. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. May I, say, may I say Italian quality? Italian quality, right. Not <laughs> just auto quality, Italian auto quality. So. so, and then I think Giovanni, you were mentioning about how the stove has, it was, has his concentric circles. On no, it. she has a small stove there, which you just take out the, 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 the circles and that controls how much flame goes up. And that's how 
stoves used to be, were from the United States. We don't know these things at all. We don't. <laughs> so just to see that it's really cool and you actually you get a little a metal lever thingy that you can quickly do it with and you just put the pot in and, and let it rip. I would like to see an example of that. I, I'm not picturing that in my head. So, Andy, you're going to have to do one of your famous internet searches and find a picture of that. Oh, trust me. I have it handy right here because okay. that's the kind of person I am. I, well, I figured. <laughs> <laughs> so. Oh, and I love your red stove, by the way, Julia. As you can behind me, this is my kitchen, and I love red. So I, that was the first thing that caught my eyes, your red, your red stove. I, I, I was already jealous of your kitchen, and now I'm even more so now, so. <laughs> so the stove and yes, look at that red stove. Yeah, it's just gorgeous. I know. I kind of think I might paint mine. I'm, I'm inspired now. I'm going <laughs> to paint my studio. I'm going to I'm going to copy you, Julia, and then try and make a kitchen look well. It's never going to look quite like yours, but it'll be my homage to you. There we go. <laughs> and I'll find I'll find the I think, or if you can put a link in here, Julia, we could we could show the stove. But the thing that we want to get to is some very important topics, right? Because we want to talk about Cucina Povera. We want to talk about the book. We want to talk about the inspiration of the book. So, and this is your sixth book. Is that correct? Exactly. Yes, it's my sixth book. And it's the first one with an American publisher because my first previous cool. books, they were all with Italian publishers. They were also uh, translated in English, um, two of them. And one of them was also in Dutch, Polish, Chinese from Taiwan, um, and of course, English and Italian. But this is the first book with an international publisher, so it's a, it's a dream come true. And it's a beautiful book. So it's a, from, and, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but was it, was it Tommaso taking the pictures or a combination of all you them. and Tommaso? All of them, all the pictures, yes. They're fabulous. Hey, each beautiful has got to do something. I mean, you really just cannot go wrong. Come on. I mean, you can't go wrong with the photography in this book. So no, it's it's gorgeous. And there is so as I was reading the book, I was I was inspired by a few things here. So um, there is I, I want to get into some of the the topics that were covered in the book. Um, to me, when and, and this is also on your blog, you talk a lot about <laughs> bread, right? And how bread is a foundation in Tuscany. Bread is so important in Tuscany, uh, more so than other places. So maybe. Let's talk a little bit about that, um, and then yeah. we can get to some of the recipes. Oh, so I say I always say during my classes that stale bread is the staple ingredient of Tuscan cuisine. So not fresh, fresh bread, but stale bread. Our bread is made without salt. So what happens? The bread is fresh the first day, and then after a couple of days, it gets stale, but never moldy. Since it's made without salt, there's no salt to attract humidity, and so it doesn't get moldy. And you can use your bread when it's three days old, one week old, 10 days old, 20 days old, because it gets drier and drier, but never moldy. And so there are so many recipes that use stale bread as their main ingredient. It could be like panzanella, the tomato and cucumber bread salad. It could be papal pomodoro, tomato bread soup. It could be ribollita, which means reboiled. It's the winter soap with beans and cavolonero and bread. But also other recipes like acqua cotta, cooked water, a soup from Maremma. Uh, stale bread is used as a filling for vegetables. It's used uh, to make bread pudding cakes. 
So it's really the staple ingredient of the Tuscan cuisine. And sometimes I make bread and I let it go stale to use the stale bread in my salads and soups. Sometimes I buy bread and let it go stale to use in my soups. Because I always have a bag of stale bread behind my door in the, in the kitchen. And that's one of my most precious ingredients. Uh, is makes... there a reason why salt was not used in the bread? Is it because salt was is it was difficult to come by in, in you know in earlier times, or is it just because you prefer the texture and the flavor? There are two. Uh, one is a legend. They say that um, since Pisa put very high taxes on salt in Florence, they decided to make bread without salt because they were stinky. They didn't want to pay more uh, for the salt. But the real reason is that our prosciutto, our cheese, they are all very salty. And so it's a perfect combination. And also, since it's without salt, it's also perfect for aging. And you can use the bread when it's stale and dry. Okay. One, one interjection. Uh, Tuscany, as it, all of Italy makes particularly good uh, uh, cured meat salami. But and we were there, Andrew. Yeah, Tuscany effectively is just unfreaking believable. Just unfreaking. They have really the best salamis. And I'm from Abruzzo as well. So the Abruzzo is okay. But uh, if you know, by the way, the the just a quick introduction side, we didn't realize when we were there in Greve, one of where we would get our our finocchio, and it was actually uh, one of the best in Italy. We got lucky, and it's just in a little. So that's why the bread doesn't shouldn't be present at all because it's just so damn good. We don't get that in the U.S., Julia, because after the war, uh, it was illegal for Italian pushers to come over, and even now it's legal but practically impossible. So mm -hmm. no one knows in the United States what, unless they have a friend from Tuscany who has a pig <laughs> farm, <laughs> we don't know what it tastes like. Okay, sorry, go ahead. No, you're right, Giovanni. I mean, that you're, you're, it's it's unfortunate that we're, we we in this country don't have access to to so much of the what makes the Italian cuisine so wonderful. Um, I, I noticed the difference. I spent um, several, I spent several, uh, quite a lot of time in Italy several years ago, and it was amazing. I took two cooking classes, and uh, it, yeah, and the markets. You're absolutely right; were just amazing. Yeah, when we when we when we were in Tuscany, and when we went to see the you know the to have the salamis, it's just you can't even really describe it. It's it's if you're in the United States, it's just another level, right? That is a that's a culinary delight to have the salamis. And even we were, we were talking on a recent episode about lardo, right? In the United States, we have no conception of what that is, right? Um, yeah, it's a delicacy. Lardo is so good. There's a, uh, uh, um, like a box in my book about lardo and lard and strutto, because there are also, like, sometimes you can confuse what is lardo and what is lard. But lardo is one of the best, uh, charcuterie products you can get. It melts on hot bread. That's delicious. Delicious. Bit of honey on top. <laughs> Absolutely. So one of the things that we mentioned in in the uh, on the topic of bread, and you made this dish, Vanessa. So we want to hear about it. Is the uh, I'll go here to the Papa Pomodoro. Yes, so, I did. And I used your, I followed your method, Julia, exactly to the letter. And it was absolutely amazing. But I loved how you, you said to use the whisk. I would never have thought of that. I would have just kind of, had I been making this on my own, I would have probably the bread in little chunks and not thought about it. But no, it was absolutely perfect. So uh, we do have a really good market 
here at where I live and I had gone purposely that morning to get tomatoes because the tomatoes are blooming are they're amazing right now they're absolutely beautiful and I have a my own little garden in the back and that I I work in every day and I have I I didn't even remember I had planted basil but I have basil now and so Giovanni likes to act to tease me that I don't get my hands dirty but I was in the garden and I cut my own basil. Thank you very much. Yeah, mm-hmm, that's right. So I, Julia, I, your method was perfect. Um, the only thing I did differently is I didn't boil the tomatoes to peel them. I have a vegetable peeler and I just peel them by hand. And, but other than that, I followed it to the T. You know, I, I did the, the chili peppers in olive oil and I did a little bit of garlic. I probably put more garlic than you do because I know I'm an American and we like to put garlic on everything, but I, it's okay. And um, okay. yeah, exactly. And then, uh, and then I did, I crushed the tomatoes by hand. It was, it was very satisfying, you know, it's a good way to get out some of your, your, your frustrations and your, your irritations toward certain people, <clears throat> Giovanni. Anyway, never mind. Um, <laughs> I told you we like to fight with him or I like to fight with him. And then, uh, and I, what I had done is I have a really good Italian uh, deli here in town and they make bread. And so I had called them a couple of days before and I had asked them to set aside bread for me to let it get stale. And so that's exactly what happened. And so I soaked it in some, um, in water and so squeeze out all the, all the, the liquid. And then I know your method suggested using just salted water, but I actually had some homemade uh, vegetable stock that I used and I just used that. And it was, um, there, there it is. And it came out absolutely delicious and, uh, perfect. And your suggestion for having it at room temperature, I think was, was perfect because it allowed the flavors to, to really develop and it, it didn't need anything. And it was just, is lovely. Your, your method is perfect. So happy. Fabulous. And I think that if you use fresh tomatoes, it's so different Yes, because it works also with canned tomatoes. Of course, a good quality of canned tomatoes is the works. But fresh tomatoes, they really make the soup uh, so much better. I would imagine you probably use canned tomatoes if you make this in the winter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Do you preserve tomatoes to use in the wintertime for things like this? Uh, yes. No. So we have a garden, a vegetable garden. My mom is the one taking care of the garden. And it really depends on the year. If we don't get many tomatoes, we don't preserve tomatoes that we buy from a shop because there's no sense. So you can you can buy already canned tomatoes. If we have uh, many tomatoes, then we do we do the preserve. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. I know it was a wonderful, and then you know garnished at the end with the fresh basil, and it it was perfect, perfecto. It, it looks fabulous, it, and yeah. and I mean when you look at it, it's just an amazing use of of uh, old bread. Like we were saying, it's bread is a gift that keeps on giving. Um, and so I'll segue a little bit to what I made because I am fascinated with chestnut flour. And I love the story. So I'll go here to your uh, blog post about chestnuts in Tuscany and learning about even the different regions and the slight uh, differences. So if you could tell us a little bit about that, Julia, some of the differences in between the, the growers of chestnuts. So in Tuscany, we have chestnuts. All, all the right side. It starts from Lunigiana and Garfagnana, then down on the Appennino, Pistoiese, Mugello, there are the mountains of Florence, and then in the south, Mount Amiata. They all have chestnuts as one of the most impro- important products. Uh, chestnut flour used to be the flour of poor people because they couldn't afford uh, real flour made with wheat. 
And then now chestnut flour is a delicacy. You can pay a good chestnut flour like five, six times a good wheat flour. But still, it remains the, 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 the idea of this flour used by people in the mountains to use in bread, to make polenta, to make thin pancakes, nechi, to make castagnaccio, the chestnut cake, to make fresh pasta. So it's such, a, 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 such an incredible product because it's vegan. Uh, if you make like um, the chestnut cake, the castagnaccio, the castagnaccio is vegan, gluten-free and sugar-free. Such a traditional recipe, but so modern because it's very inclusive. Uh, and despite and that, it's actually good. Yes. <laughs> despite that, it's good. But I mean, honestly, castagnaccio looks incredible, right? When you look at it. And it's an acquired taste. It's an acquired taste. Is it? Well, uh, I have, I don't know if the story is on the blog, but I have this friend from Finland. And the first time, 10 years ago, that I made castagnaccio for her, she was excited by the color because it looks like chocolate when you mix the chestnut flour with water. But when she did <laughs> the first bite, she was like, this is like reindeer meat. And I was like, reindeer meat? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was the rosemary and the olive oil that are a little bit, you associate them with savory uh, dishes. I tr- like, like, like 10 years after, she came back here to, to visit. And I said, okay, now I'll make you again castagnaccio. I got better in making castagnaccio in 10 years. So I want to see if it's still tasting like reindeer meat. <laughs> And she was like, I can see why you like it, but no, it's not my thing. It's it's an acquired taste. It's like smoky, it's like savory. Uh, but for us, I mean, growing up with castagnaccio is really a treat. Yeah. yeah. Could you make it sweet or would that not be traditional? No, usually farina, do, in chestnut flour in Tuscany is called farina dolce flour because if you put a pinch of the chestnut flour on your tongue, it melts and it's sweet. So you don't need sugar. I think okay. it was the mix of the ingredients that was, you know, a little bit <laughs> weird for her. Yeah. Yeah. And I, that's hilarious. I and, and wonder if a, she was thinking of a different noun <laughs> and she was just kind about it. Maybe she was thinking of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Maybe she was. Who knows? Cool. <laughs> but, I, but, but I'll tell you this. I mean, I so I purchased t- chestnut flour and it is so true. When you put a little bit on your tongue and it, it's just this wonderful sweet and it's just feels just like a chestnut right when you when you when you taste it i i love the story of and i have to get to this a little bit of this was i think your grandmother who when she was going to school she would stop by a mill right that was making chestnut flour and she would grab some chestnuts to have at school yeah because they were that packed with calories so it was the perfect snack and uh she, she would i mean they were her relatives. She was the chestnuts, so she was stopping there <laughs> to meet the, her cousin, and then they would go together to school. Uh, but then, yeah. So uh, I so I decided I was going to make uh, lasagna bastarde, and then the mm-hmm. process. And uh, I'll show a little bit about. Uh, and it, to me, it was a wonderful learning process of how to make it and how to work with chestnut flour. So I'll bring up the pictures here right now of it. And it was a delight to, to work with. So, so I, I make bread, so I make sourdough, I make other breads, and I'm, so I'm used to uh, working with bread. I make pasta as well. And it was, it was really interesting working with the chestnut flour because it, it, 
it was a bit tricky. You know, it's, you know, the mix of the chestnut flour and the all-purpose flour. And then no eggs at all. So you're, you're mixing in water and olive oil and really trying to work with the dough to make it, to make it manageable, let it rest for a while. But even rolling it out was a little tricky, right? To, to, to play with, to make sure I could get it right. But it was a lot of fun to learn. And I absolutely, so I did a little bit of a mixture. I did the uh, lasagna bastarde, but when I, you had two versions of your walnut sauce. Uh, you had a mm-hmm. version where you had with cream. I actually did the one from the book, from the walnut mm-hmm. sauce, where you use the stale bread and and then rest that in, in milk and then use the stale bread in it. And it was amazing, right? Just the, just the effect when you have the chestnut or when you have the walnuts and then you're mixing in the bread with it and you're making the uh, salsa de noche was just incredible how it works. This is what surprises me every time, sorry, for the traditional cuisine. Uh, it's more modern than you expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, the use of ingredients, the uh, generosity, it's like simple ingredients combined together that really gives you more than you expect. And it's very modern in this. And even Andy, what was the texture like? You said you use the chestnut flour in conjunction with the plain flour. What was the difference uh, in the pasta between this and the other pasta that you made in terms of rolling it out? Um, it was certainly, I mean, it was it was relatively easy to roll out, but when it got thin, you have to make sure you had a very well-floured surface to work on because it wanted to pull apart a little bit, so you had to be careful. Um, but it rolled out well, and then I was cutting it into the diamond shapes, right, that, that, you, would, that you would serve it with. Um, to me, that was interesting about the walnut sauce was when you have this paste that almost like if, I don't know if you've ever, ever had hummus, right? It almost felt like hummus to a certain degree, but then you okay. add the then you add the pasta water to it, and it was magic at that point because it just became this creamy, just delightful thing to, on your palate. So to me, I just it's part chemistry, right? When you when you're seeing these things all kind of come together, and then it just hits that moment where it's perfect, and then you plate it. So yeah, it was. I, I recently I was on a trip and I had. Um, uh, the, this was in the southern part of the United States, and the and the the owner of the restaurant was actually from Liguria, and I saw mm-hmm. salsa de la noche on there, and I'm like, you never see that, you know, on a, on a menu in the United States. So I'm like, I've got to do it. So I fell in love with it. So I had to make this dish, and the dish was amazing. Happy, thank you. So getting back to your book, Julia, what we do want to talk about is some of the you know because when you look at cucina povera. It's really a philosophy, right? And I think it's, is it fair to say in your book, your book isn't limited to Tuscany. Your book is a journey across Italy. Um, yes. Uh, when uh, we were working on the recipes to put in the book, we wanted to be sure that every region of Italy is represented with some recipes, just to show how the basic um, uh, simple rules of the Cucina Povera are then represented with local recipes. So the same approach to leftovers, for example, and stale bread becomes papal pomodoro in Tuscany or pancotto in Puglia or canedel in the north of Italy. So again, same principles, same rules, different recipes according to what you find. Because this is another principle of cucina povera, use what you have. Use what is local to you, what is seasonal, um, and it will be, of course, be more affordable. 
May I ask a question? Uh, do you see that tendency still resisting in the countryside where you live, or is it diminishing there as it is rapidly in, in some places? That so, attachment yeah. to cucina povera, di cucina <coughs> locale, mm. uh, local, local, local ingredients. Here we have lots of, forgive me, um, as mentioned before, Bangladesh and uh, Sri Lanka on electric bikes carrying Just Eat and 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 Deliveroo, uh, big mm -hmm. containers um, filled with cheeseburgers and and very bad sushi to different households. Is there resistance in the countryside of Tuscany where you live? Uh, I think it's the same everywhere. You have you at the same time you want to try the new food, the new flavors, the new trend pokeballs. But on the other side, there are so many restaurants opening up again where you really eat cool. traditional, seasonal uh, recipes. So I think it's uh, both of them. And in the countryside, I can speak from what I see in my family. We still eat what is uh, local to us and what is seasonal. Um, look, look at your kitchen, but of course you do. Well, and, Julian, and what is your favorite recipe in the book? If you had to choose just Mm, that's a difficult question. <laughs> I can tell you my favorite chapter. <laughs> okay, it's please. The vegetable chapter. I really enjoyed working on the several recipes with vegetables from all over Italy. And probably my favorite recipe uh, in that chapter is the bread and cheese stuffed eggplants from Calabria. It's it's a little bit time consuming because you have to boil the eggplants, empty the the, the eggplants, stuff them again, fry them, mm, cook yeah. them with tomato sauce. But the result is just Yum. incredible. Mangiato. Amazing. They look they look phenomenal. Try that. And I'm not a huge eggplant fan, but that might change my mind. <laughs> well, even like I was, with the, I think it's uh, you have uh, uh, was it Rizzi Abizi in here, mm -hmm. and I was. I had no idea that even existed before until I, until I read the book. Um, what was what was one of the maybe biggest surprises, like a region of Italy that you had to do a lot of research on, or something that was maybe a bit of a challenge? Um, so consider that I was working on this book during lockdown. We were planning at the beginning to travel to taste and learn new recipes, so I had to rely on my friends taking online classes with them talking on Zoom, uh, exchanging photos of Casella, for example, on WhatsApp with my friend. Like, is it like, does it look right? Or should I cook it longer? So uh, one of the most interesting region was Abruzzo because I don't know, I didn't know a lot about Abruzzo, but I have a good friend there and she, she teaches cooking classes. So basically we were cooking together on Zoom and like I was trying to reproduce what she was doing, what her mother-in-law was doing trying to find a good balance, for example, for the pallotte casciova with bread and cheese so that my pallotte would dance in the oil. Every day danced and that was like a very satisfying moment. Yeah. That's wonderful. <laughs> a quick backhand quickly. When I make um, uh, very thin crepes, which we make, and then roll, roll them up, I actually use a little bit of a lightly aged mixed in, a Tuscan, uh, sheep because it actually gives more balance to the flavor. Plus, I use a, a, a full meat broth usually instead of just a, 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 a chicken broth. This is the Scripelli Umbuso? 
from October until May and Ribolita as well, uh, once a month when it gets cold. So one of them has, uh, has, a, has a beautiful thing for me because all of their flavors, and this is not a, a gratuitous compliment, Andy knows this, uh, maybe I spent 100 days in Tuscany total, something like that, in different places. I, it's the only place I've never eaten badly, not once, because they have clean, direct, which uh, if you have a nice tongue, it, 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 it works really well. They don't have, they have some amalgamation, uh, but it's just clean, overwhelmingly deep flavor. And that's why I like it that much. Anyway, keep going. Sorry. Yes, to really soon. Yeah, it's the the I love the, the the fact that in Tuscany it's the countryside, it's the direct connection with the production of food, the the quality of the things that are coming out. One of the things in maybe our last topic is the beans of Tuscany and the huge importance of the beans. In things like uh, riboletta and things, so so Julie, if you could touch a little bit upon that, or anything else from your book that you that you want to make sure you convey to our listeners. Yeah, so um, we the, the Fiorentini people from Florence they are also called Fiorentini mangia fagioli, bean eaters. <laughs> That's to understand how important the beans are for Florentine people, but from Tuscan people, uh, from the simple uh, ribollita, simple like vegetable soup with beans and cavolonero and stale bread. But also fagioli all'olio, so the, the beans cooked and dressed just with a drizzle of olive oil. Usually the best moment to have them is with olio nuovo, the new newly pressed olive oil, because uh, the, the, the warmth of the beans really brings out all the flavor of the olive oil. But it's really, I think, from all over Italy. Uh, it's not just in Tuscany that, that we eat beans, chickpeas, fava beans, lentils, or chickpea flour. Uh, they are also common of the Cucina Povera. And you might think of Tuscany for uh, the big Fiorentina, the stack, but it's not just that. That's in restaurants, and it's a modern thing. But it's then, very expensive. It's really expensive now. It's very expensive, and it's not that traditional. It's not that we eat Fiorentina every week. Mm -hmm. uh, so what is more common are beans. Uh, and the same is in the south of Italy can be beans or chickpeas, pasta fagioli, pasta ceci. Uh, this is really something belonging to Cucina Povera and something very uh, present in all the tradition of the Italian cuisine. And it's, uh, and it's funny because having visited Florence, there's, there's cooking for the tourists, which is like these big productions of Florentine steak. And then there's real Italian cooking, which is, you know, Cucina Povera. Are beans used similar to how they're used in other cultures to make things like hummus? Like, are there are there dips or spreads that are made of beans in um, in in Tuscany, Julia? Actually, there are served. The best beans are cooked al fiasco, so in the flask, the glass, the glass, mm -hmm. and they are simply dressed with olive oil, served as a side dish or as a main course or as your meal. Uh, or they are cooked al uccelletto, which means with sage and a touch of uh, tomato paste, mm -hmm. uh, and they are a main course served like that. Or you make pasta fagioli, so pasta and beans, mm -hmm. just like pasta and chickpeas, pasta and lentils, and that's the most um, complete dish you can have because you have carbs and you have proteins, mm -hmm. and that's of course a meal of poor people, but. 
so rich in flavor, uh, so balanced that you have everything you need there. And so yeah. often beans and chickpeas are used combined with pasta to make these soups. The beans are usually, or at least often, <laughs> you, you, you do it yourself. You don't buy them already cooked in a can. Usually you can, but it makes a huge difference mm. where it's been made and the, the flavors in some, some beans are, are out of this world. Mm-hmm. Poor thing. She has to go probably. Yeah. yeah. No, I agree. I think I think any kind of bean we we cook a lot of beans in, in the food of my um of my culture. And so you're right, Giovanni, getting fresh and soaking them overnight is is the best way to get them. You know, getting them canned so already cooked is the, the quality just is just some, not always very good. And it's really great. Just some fava beans with some good pecorino and it's with a good glass of wine. It's heaven. It is. Mm-hmm. It's perfect. It doesn't have to be complex. Fava beans, huh? Did you drink that with a with a Chianti? Nice, nice movie reference. Well done. Thank you. Right? Julia, did you ever see the movie The Silence of the Lambs? The American movie? Yeah, okay. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Fava beans. (laughs) That's funny. I can think of some people's livers that would be fun to actually eat. I know. (laughs) Megatini al Giovanni. Most of them are in are in political positions, but <laughs> but let's not go there. Let's not go there. Not let's now. let's let's stick let's, with cooking. She has to go. So, Julia, thank you for your time. I think uh, so. People can stay in touch with you if they. So you have a newsletter called Letters from Tuscany. Uh, so it's really where we love to share stories and recipes now. Letters from Tuscany is like our independent publication. So you have a free subscription or a paid subscription, and you get exclusive recipes every week, stories, foodie guides, podcasts, everything. And she has other stuff too, where you can, when you get, you get local guides, if you guys are going to go on vacation uh, in the countryside, particularly they have their local guides, which are really useful mm-hmm. uh, by real people get a bit guiltily saying where you can go, um, trying not to destroy the few places remaining that are not inundated with too many people. Great site. Yes, it's wonderful. Very, very comprehensive. And I love your style of writing. I loved how you had a different word of the day during the uh, the lockdown when you were writing. Uh, that I, that was my favorite. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, so very impressive. So for those that haven't visited, please go visit JulesKitchen.com. Please subscribe to Letters from Tuscany. You'll be happy you did. And uh, and also please. Wherever you buy your books, online, in person, please pick up Cucina Povera. You'll also be happy you did. Julia, it's yes. been a lot of fun talking to you. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you Chibello. so much. Really Chibello Chibello. Parlare con te. Oh, so I'm taking Italian. Grazie. Italian. Grazie. <laughs> Grazie. <laughs>